It's Wednesday, May 20th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill, and it's just me in the studio today. We've done more than 800 episodes of Market Foolery. I think this is the fifth one that I've done solo. And uh, as I say, every time I do one of these, please feel free to skip this one. <laughs> this might be a good time to check out Industry Focus, our other daily podcast at The Motley Fool. And I promise you we'll have a, a regular episode of Market Foolery on Thursday. Uh, but it's just me, because there were, there were a couple of things I wanted to talk about. And um, today is David Letterman's last show. And this was one of those things that over the last couple of weeks, I thought, boy, there's really no way I'm going to be able to not talk about this. Um, so I, I, I'm going to talk about David Letterman in a minute, and I, I will, I will make some points about business and investing. I promise you. Uh, but first, I'm going to talk about Orson Welles. Uh, Orson Welles would have turned 100 years old on May 6th. I only know this because some of the people I follow on Twitter. We're tweeting about it and and putting up photos of him and and if you don't know Orson Welles, if you're unfamiliar with that name, uh, he was the person who wrote, produced, directed, and starred in the classic film Citizen Kane. Um, and when I saw the stuff about him, oh, he would have and he died 30 years ago, so it was it wasn't like he almost made it to 100. Uh, he died in 1985, but. I was thinking about Wells and his career, and and that's a that is one of the all time great movies. Any list you see of the best films of all time has Citizen Kane somewhere on that list. Um, but from the context of of what we talk about at the Motley Fool, the the David Gardner phrase that came to mind when I was thinking about Wells was rule breaker. This guy was just an amazing talent. He came from. The world of theater and radio, and when he—it's important to keep in mind, Citizen came. That film came out in 1941. So at the time when he went to Hollywood, and that was the first film he made, movies had only had actors and actresses talking in them for about 15 years. The idea that you know talkies, as they were referred to, that, that was a relatively new concept, and. One of the reasons Citizen Kane is, well, one of the reasons it constantly makes those best films of all time lists is because the film holds up. It's an amazing story, and we'll get to that in a second. But, but part of the reason it is revered and Wells is revered is because, because he did not come from a background in filmmaking, he brought a completely fresh set of eyes to the filmmaking process. So there are innovations in filmmaking that appear for the first time in that movie. Things to do with lighting, the camera angles. I believe uh, that the first the the classic shot that is used all the time now in films where the camera is outside of a window and the camera seems to move through the window into an interior scene where people are talking. I believe the first time that ever appeared was in Citizen Kane. And Again, he just brought this whole new way of thinking, and he didn't. You know, he was working with experienced production people, and he would say, "Well, I want to do this," and they said, "Well, you, you can't do that. We we don't have a way of doing that." And he said, "Well, let's figure out a way to do that." And so he brings this this whole new set of innovations to the filmmaking process. Citizen Kane, the story is a fictional. Is the Kane in the film is Charles Foster Kane? 
who is a fictionalized version of William Randolph Hearst, who was the newspaper publisher. Hearst built the largest newspaper chain in America. And recently on Market Foolery, uh, I think both times this happened, Jason Moser was in the room. We talked about Periscope and Meerkat, the live video streaming apps, and how that's disrupting certain industries. And I've said before, one of the things I love about working at The Motley Fool is there are just so many smart people here. And it's not just the analysts that you listen to here in the studio, but people in our tech department, finance, everywhere. We Just everywhere I look, there's, there's a smart person I can talk to and, and ask questions. And after the, uh, the Floyd Mayweather-Manny Pacquiao fight, uh, where part of the story was Periscope because there were problems with the video stream, and so there were people who were l- live streaming the fight from the event itself. Other people were just saying, hey, I'm going to live stream my television set. Um, One of the people I've worked with for a long time here at The Motley Fool is a guy named Mark Brooks. He heads up our business intelligence uh, group. He's uh, huge with data and analytics, all that sort of thing. And I asked him after the fight, and I said, did you see this stuff about Periscope? What what do you think about this? Where, Where do you think this is going? And he thought for a second, and he said, I'm not quite sure where it's going, but one thing I'm sure of is this is going to get ugly. And that brings me back to Citizen Kane, because there was a film made about 20 years ago about the making of Citizen Kane. And it's a, it's a, a wonderful, I mean, you should definitely watch Citizen Kane, but, but this film is called RKO 281. RKO was the studio that produced Citizen Kane, 281 was the project number that was assigned to the film. So RKO 281 is about young Orson Welles going to Hollywood, trying to make this film that uh, is clearly about William Randolph Hearst, who is alive at the time and is incredibly powerful and learns that this film is being made about him. And he does absolutely everything he can to stop the film. He does everything he can to make sure Citizen Kane never sees the light of day. Um, I was, and I know this from the film, but I was just reading some stuff online, and apparently one of the things William Randolph Hearst did was he went to the president of RKO. He goes to the president of the film studio, a guy named George Schaefer, and he offers him $800,000 to bury the film. Basically, like, I'll give you this $800,000. You destroy every copy of Citizen Kane so that it never shows up in theaters. Again, this is 1941. $800,000 in 1941, I'm guessing that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to $15 million today. Um, and despite his best efforts, Citizen Kane does get out there. It doesn't get nearly as wide a release as it would have because... Hearst makes sure that none of his newspapers review the film. He makes sure that they threaten the large movie theater chains to make sure that the film doesn't get shown there. But there are some independent film houses where it does show up and it does see the light of day. And eventually, 
uh, it goes on to to live forever. Um, but the thing about RKO two eight one, the thing about that movie is, it gives you a glimpse of a powerful businessman who is threatened and goes to enormous lengths to do what he can to control the situation. And when I think about Periscope and Meerkat, and I think about cable companies and sort of the alliance that we see right now between broadcasters and promoters of live sports, and you may have seen the story about the uh, the PGA, uh, Professional Golf Association, yanked the media credentials from uh, a woman who was a credentialed reporter uh, because she was using Periscope to live stream a practice round. And when I think about all of these powerful interests, and here's this live video streaming app, I, I think that uh, my friend and coworker Mark Brooks is right. This is going to get ugly. And it's going to be amazing to watch. It's, you know, we talk from time to time about the battle for the living room, the battle for the car, that sort of thing. I think the, the, the live video streaming battle is going to be epic. I mentioned Orson Welles being a rule breaker. That is certainly one way to describe David Letterman as well. Uh, very much, very much a rule breaker in this sense that when his show first premiered, Late Night with David Letterman, when it premiered on NBC, February 1st, 1982, the late night television landscape was unbelievably different from the way it is today. First of all, you you didn't have as many options, obviously. Uh, Netflix was not even uh, Reed Hastings' dream. And Johnny Carson was the host of The Tonight Show. And, you know, if you're, if you're me... <laughs> If you're if you're closing in on fifty years old or older, then you remember Johnny Carson. Um, if you're younger, uh, well, you can obviously go to YouTube and and see Johnny Carson, and and maybe you watch and you, you don't really understand what the big deal was. But please just take it from me: Johnny Carson ruled late night television not just because he was so good at what he did, but because he gave us this construct for what a late night show was. He had a great sense of humor. He had impeccable timing. He could improvise. He was a generous host. He was, he was good with amateurs. He was good with the biggest stars in the world. Um, and by the way, NBC made a ton of money off of Johnny Carson and late night television in general. And so when Letterman comes in to do his show, which comes on after Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show, NBC tells him, listen, we want you to do this show, but you can't do it like Johnny does it. You can't do a big monologue at the beginning. You can't have a big band like Johnny does. And so Letterman, with his team of writers and producers, ends up creating things like stupid pet tricks, stupid human tricks. They go around New York City. They're filming all these segments. They do sky bowling. Just go ahead and type that into YouTube sometimes, sky bowling. It's, it's enjoyable stuff. And, but he ends up creating this whole new experience, this whole new viewing experience. And so off of the foundation that Johnny Carson builds, David Letterman creates this, I don't want to say it's a new genre because it's not really, but it is a different 
type of viewing experience. Uh, there have been a lot of great things written about Letterman over the last couple of weeks. Um, one of them, and I want to say it was Jimmy Kimmel, who has his own show on ABC that competes with David Letterman. And Jimmy Kimmel is such a fan of David Letterman that he told ABC, yeah, um, I'm, I'm not doing a live show. I, I'm not doing a new show against David Letterman. Uh, we'll put up one of my reruns, but I'm, as tribute to David Letterman, I'm, I'm not doing a new show to compete with his final show. Um, but I think Kimmel was the one who wrote that. Watching David Letterman, you, you felt like you were in a club. Uh, Johnny Carson was the way that tens of millions of Americans sort of capped their day. But when you stayed up late and you watched David Letterman, it really did feel like this almost subversive, wonderful, comedic experience. Uh, like I said, he was a rule breaker, both from the content he created, but also from the way he treated his network. Every once in a great while, Johnny Carson would make a joke at the expense of the NBC network. David Letterman did that constantly. He mocked executives. He took shots at personalities, the Today Show, which was another huge moneymaker for the network. Um, And that, by the way, it was hilarious for viewers like me, but that helped um, lead in some way to Letterman leaving NBC. I think I've mentioned this before. Bill Carter is a guy who has covered the television industry for the New York Times for, gosh, probably 35 years or so. And he wrote a great book called The Late Shift. And it's about the retirement of Johnny Carson and the battle to replace him on The Tonight Show, the battle between David Letterman and his people, because they feel like, well, he's put in 10 years as the show right after Carson. And then Jay Leno, who had been a a regular substitute host, and his manager really angling for for Jay Leno to get it. Um, And just like RKO 281, The Late Shift shows all this great behind-the-scenes stuff. It was made into a movie. I think HBO made the movie. Uh, I know it's available on Amazon Prime. It's probably on Netflix as well. Um, and it's uh, as someone who has read the book and seen the movie, it's uh, it's pretty spot on in terms of the drama and and how everything worked behind the scenes. But you know, as we now know, Jay Leno got the Tonight Show, and David Letterman went to CBS. And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, his ratings from time to time have been up. They've been down. Um, I think there are a couple of, and again, a lot of stuff has been written about this, but I think there are a couple of things uh, that happened to David Letterman in the last 15 years that sort of changed the way he did his show. Um, because he's the first one to admit that over the last decade or so, he's he's dialed it back. Uh, he's maybe not phoning it in, but he's he's certainly not doing the type of work that he was doing in the early days of his show. Um, in the year 2000, he had emergency quintuple bypass surgery. I don't know about you, but I think if I had emergency heart surgery, that would probably cause me to reevaluate just how hard I was working and how much effort I was dedicating to to my job and, and making me ask the question, maybe I need to dial it back a little bit. And then a few years after that, his son was born. And you know, if you're a parent, uh, parenthood changes Almost all of us. Not all of us, but almost all of us. And I think, I think that was the case with David Letterman as well. Uh, 
the landscape, as I said, now for late night is is so different. There's some, and and by the way, I'm not one of these people who's 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 going to tell you that. Oh, it was so much better back when Letterman was doing. It. No, Letterman was great. I loved him. I I I wouldn't trade that experience for for any other sort of viewing experience. But I also won't tell you that the choices for viewers were better in the 1980s than they are right now. You've got Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Conan O'Brien. Uh, everything they're doing on Comedy Central. I mean, there's so many great innovative shows going on. And and by the way, those people, particularly Fallon, Kimmel, and O'Brien, they all have their talents. But uh, I'm pretty confident that that I I'm pretty confident that I am older than certainly not all of you who are listening right now, but certainly a lot of you. Um, and just as David Letterman built on the foundation of Johnny Carson. All of those people have built what they're doing on the new foundation that David Letterman built. A word about the business for a second. Uh, I am not a shareholder of CBS stock, but if you are, I have good news and better news. The good news is you've had a fantastic run in terms of your late night division. Despite ratings being down at various points in time, Late night television for CBS was a barren wasteland 30 years ago. And David Letterman built it into something not only viable, but nicely profitable. So that's the good news. The better news is that the late night division for CBS is about to get a lot more profitable because David Letterman's production company owns his show. When he got lured away in the mid-1990s from NBC to CBS, one of the things CBS gave him was ownership of his show. Uh, If you've ever seen the end credits of Letterman's show, or for that matter, for um, a show like Everybody Loves Raymond, um, which is done by Letterman's production company, you see the logo, Worldwide Pants. That's the name of his production company. They own that show. CBS is going to own the show that replaces it, that's going to be hosted by Stephen Colbert. So, I'm pretty confident that profit margins in CBS's late-night division are about to shoot to the moon. Uh, Last but not least, as I've said from time to time, and you know, if you've been listening for any length of time, at The Motley Fool, we study businesses, but we also study business leaders. And tonight, David Letterman is calling it a career. And I think just as, uh, just to pick one business leader, Jim Senegal from Costco, I think in the same way, David Letterman's longevity is admirable. And make no mistake, he could have kept going for another couple of years if he wanted to. Les Moonves, who runs CBS, would have done that in a heartbeat. But Letterman decided it was time for him to walk off the stage. And, uh, like I said, the, the late-night landscape is in better shape, and absolutely part of the credit has to go to David Letterman. So, I will be watching. Uh, it, will be, it won't be sad. It will be maybe a little wistful for people like me, but um, uh, I've definitely had far more laughs in my lifetime as a result of David Letterman's work than I would have otherwise. That's going to do it for this episode. I if you're still listening, thanks for hanging in there. 
if you, uh, well, if you ended up skipping this episode, then you're not listening to me now. So we'll just move on. Um, like I said, there'll be a regular episode of Market Foolery on Thursday. Um, as I always say, I may have interests in the stocks that I've talked about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That does it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.